Today, I'm very excited because um, it's a new way for me to teach, and that is to teach exegetically through a chapter. Last week, what we did was we went through chapter 9 and 10 of John, and this week we're going to go through chapter 11. So you see you have a fuller picture, a clearer perspective, line upon line, precept upon precept, as Jesus was walking, teaching, uh, um, performing miracles, signs, and wonders all the way up to the cross. This is very important to understand because as we do so, we'll see just how Jesus taught. Uh, Jesus did not, did not have topical teachings as we oftentimes do. What we do is we feel like there's a pressing need in our lives, a felt need. It might be loneliness. It might be rejection. Uh, it might be midlife crisis or whatever it is. And whatever our need is, we run to the Scriptures. We gather all the Scriptures in regards to, all the verses in regards to our felt need. And we attempt to find a template by which to live. But that is oftentimes not very um, safe to do because it's very easy to put a spin on a verse if you take it out of context. But if you study the Word of God the way we are going to do it today, and we did last week, it's um, much easier to follow Jesus' train of thought and so grab a hold of His original intent of what He meant to tell us. Today, as we study John chapter 11, we will learn about the purpose in life from Jesus Himself. We will learn about God's glory revealed. We'll learn about what it means to be loved by Jesus. We'll learn what it means to or how God elevates our faith within us. We will learn about what death is all about. We'll also be taught by Jesus Himself in regards to the resurrection, His, identi His identity, and much more. So let's go to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. And if you have a Bible, blessed is he who has his Bible, for he will be able to make notes, <laughs> saith the Lord. And you can become very familiar with the actual chapter. Next time you open your book to that chapter, you have... A great understanding as you read through the whole chapter, verse by verse. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now here we have three characters in our story already. It is the same Mary who was sitting at Jesus' feet while her sister Martha was cleaning the kitchen. And Martha complained and said, Jesus, tell my sister to come and help me. Well, they had a brother. His name was Lazarus. And of course, in the story, other than these three characters, we also have Jesus, who's the main character. And they are in the village of Bethany, where they lived. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Here we see that this family was loved by, by the Lord. It is uh, thought that they might have grown up together, and Jesus loved this young man, Lazarus. But when Jesus heard this, He said, when Jesus heard that the one him, he, whom He loves, Lazarus, is sick, He said, this sickness is not meant for death, but is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, we've heard this before, right? Last year, when we went through chapter 9 and 10, we learned about this blind man who was born blind. The disciples asked Jesus, is he blind because his parents' parents' sins or because of his own sins? Jesus said, neither. He's blind because God is going to be glorified through his blindness, through his sickness. Here we see the same thing. Now, Lazarus is sick. Same thing. Why is Lazarus sick? Jesus said, it's not unto death. He's sick for the glory of God. Interesting. Something we need to see here is that Jesus did everything He did on purpose. He did it with a purpose. And He did it for a purpose. Today, there's this great need for people to discover their purpose in life. They feel like they've never discovered their purpose. 
because they're not quite as prominent, wealthy, healthy, or successful as they've always wanted to be. So they're searching for a purpose that they believe God has for them. My, my hope is for you to understand that every single one of us have exactly the same purpose in life. And that is this purpose, even the purpose of the sickness. Jesus' purpose. And that is to glorify God in all things. Whether you're sick, whether you're healthy, uh, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, male, female, no matter what nationality, every single one of us have exactly the same purpose, and that is to glorify God in the life that we have. That is the best use of this life is glorifying God, knowing Him and making Him known, discovering God's glory, and then proclaiming God's glory. That is the highest use of life. This life is only for the sake of being prepared for the life hereafter. And the only way for us to prepare for the life hereafter is to, becoming, is, is to become familiar with the glory of God. This is the purpose of life. And any other purpose will burn in that final day because everything we ever do will go through the fire. And if, if we've done it for somebody else or for ourselves, it will burn up. But what we do for God when we discover His glory and we proclaim His glory, we have fulfilled the purposes in our lives. So now, I want to encourage you not only to realize that our purpose is to glorify God, but we have to learn to live on purpose. You don't have to find your purpose. You know your purpose. It is written in the known will of God. We have our purpose. What we lack is not discovering it, is actually living on purpose. You don't have to worship God when you feel, feel like it. You don't have to worship God when you f praise God when you feel like it. You don't have to start serving God when you feel like it. You don't have to serve God uh, or do anything when you feel like it. You do it because you do it on purpose. That is the purpose-filled life. You don't have to discover it. You have to do it. That's the difference. And so here Jesus is on purpose relating to this family that he loves in a very specific way because he has a purpose in mind, and that is for God to be glorified, even in this young man's sickness and ultimate death. So the reason is for God's purpose. Now, in the raising of Lazarus, we will have the most spectacular, uh, you know, manifestation of God's glory. God is the one who brings life to the death, to the dead, gives life to the dead. And not only does he, is he the giver of life, he is life himself. He is the source of life. Verse 5 and 6, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, their brother. Interesting, watch this. Now Jesus loved them. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Here is Jesus behaving in a shocking way. And this response of Jesus reveals to us the divine line of scriptural thinking, which is this. Jesus loves these two sisters and their brother Lazarus so much that when he heard that his brother was sick, he doesn't immediately rush to his sick bed in order to alleviate the pain, bring healing, keep him alive. Instead of doing what we believe love does, he says, okay, no, I will wait a couple more days until he dies. I love him so much. I love his sisters so much. Now that he's sick, I'll just stay put for another couple of days, wait for him to die. What kind of love did Jesus love his followers with? Because that's strange, isn't it? That goes co completely contrary to what we believe love should do. What kind of love did Jesus love his followers with? If I had to ask anybody that question, they would probably answer it this way, because that's the way I answered it. How does Jesus love? What kind of love does he love human beings with, his followers with? I would say... I would have to identify the individual I have the most, the, the deepest, purest love for, an eternal love for somebody. And I would say, that love right there, that's how Jesus should love. That is how Jesus loves. 
Because what I would do and what everybody does is they would believe in order for Jesus to be loving, he would have to do, he would have to love the way we love when we love at our best. Because we think that God is like us. And the Bible says that's wrong. He's not like us. He doesn't think like us. He isn't like us. We are not like Him. His ways are not like ours. Our ways is not, are not like His. And neither do we love like He loves. He loves in a very, very interesting way. And I, and I think when, when, when we see this, we will be able to identify and articulate when God loves us. We would feel loved when we realize His means of love. So do not think that Jesus loves like you love. He loves in a different way. And in order to discover it, I would like to ask you to think with me. See, I love my wife in a very different way than I love all other women. I love all humans, but I love my children in a very different way than I love all the humans of the world. You love your children in a very different way than what you love your neighbor. I love my dog, but in a very different way than I love my siblings. How did Jesus love his disciples? How did Jesus love his friends? Like Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Well, evidently, the way he loved them didn't, didn't feel a lot like love. It wasn't a sentimental love. It wasn't emotional love. But it was love. He lo his love for others is always for the best eternal interest of that individual. He loved them in a way that was best for their eternal interests, their eternal benefits. That's how he loved. That's how he comes to you. That's how he comes to me. What's best for you eternally? His delay leads to a great great blessing and that was how he was loving them you see raising Lazarus from the dead would allow them to see God's power raising Lazarus from the dead would allow them to see God's authority and God's ability it will allow them to see God's glory in a completely new way I mean just two chapters ago he healed a blind man and they saw God's power and God's ability and God's glory but Look at how it escalates. Two chapters later, he is now about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And after that, he dies. And then he rises from the dead. And then he goes up in heaven. I mean, everything about Jesus escalates and it speeds up. I mean, now when we get to these chapters here before he actually goes to the cross, because remember, he was about to get crucified after this. And he needed to get onto the cross willingly right at the same time as the Passover lamb was being slaughtered. Why? Because he is our Passover lamb. The Passover lamb the Jews practice in the Old Testament is a type and a shadow of the real lamb of God who dies for us, Jesus. And as those lambs were slaughtered, the bleeding lambs, as the blood splattered, so the spear went into Jesus' side and he said, it is finished. All at the same time. How could you say God is not sovereign? He's absolutely sovereign Amen. to the second. Yes. He times out all of history. It's an amazing thing. And so as Jesus is moving toward that moment, he's to every single statement starts is packed with meaning. Every single word that he speaks needs to be unpacked and developed in order to understand what he's saying. Because daylight isn't there forever. That means every time you see the way God loves, you will realize it's by him revealing himself to us. The way God loves you is by revealing himself to you, showing you his glory. That is how he loves you. You know, that means every time you see another part of God's divine character, you open up the scriptures and you, and, you, and you learn about God's character. And you go, wow, that's an amazing thing about God. 
That is God loving you. Because a chapter ago, Jesus said to the, to the uh, religious leaders, He said, I have come to judge the world, remember? And He said, I have come to judge the world. How? By making, the, making those who see blind and then taking those who are blind and making them see. And then He said to those Pharisees, He said, but you do not believe. Why? Because you are not my sheep. He didn't say, if only you would believe, you would become part of my sheep. That is exactly the opposite of what he said. He said, you do believe because you are my sheep, or you Pharisees, you do not believe because you are not part of my sheep. All right, so when Jesus takes the eyes that see and he makes them blind to his revealed glory versus when he takes the blind and he makes them see his glory he is he's loving on them he's loving on them that way somebody goes like no jesus loves everyone yes he does but not in the same way you see i love my dog but not the same as i do my children we love differently and that's why people always get into this argument about Jesus loves everyone. Yeah, he does. But some he loves in such a way he opens their eyes and reveals himself to them. The Pharisees couldn't see Jesus for anything. I mean, can you see that? The Pharisees could not identify Jesus. The Bible says that they were blinded by God. I mean, it's, it's there in the scriptures. It's an amazing thing. And I'm saying that to you because you and I ought to fall to our knees and say, thank you, God, for your favor upon my life. When you are able to open up the Bible and go like, oh, wow, look at God revealed to me. I can see God's character. Because <coughs> every time you see another part of His eternal attributes, He's revealing Himself to you. And that's His means of loving you. Every time you look at His incomprehensible works, it's, you look at the cross and you go, wow, that's an amazing thing. How God, a forgiving, a God who demands I live in forgiveness, forgave me justly through a bloody cross. I mean, it's an amazing thing when you look at that. And it's revealed to you. And you recognize Christ for who He is, the Messiah. And you recognize His work as, a, as, a, as, a, as the work of grace. When you see that and, and God's works are revealed to you, this is God loving on you. Because not everybody sees. Not everybody's eyes are open. Some are blinded. I hope you get that. Because I've looked at scriptures and I've experienced the mind-blowing truth about God Himself. Never, rec never recognizing that that is actually God loving on me. That is actually God loving me. Now, can I reject the love of God? Yes, I can. How? By just leaving this shut all week long. How can I reject the love of God? I can just reject the love, love of God by disconnecting from the body of Christ. You see, I have recognized this thing that's happened but it's important for you and I to have a very high view of church, the body of Christ. He said, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We ought to have a high view of Christ's work and Christ's body. But our culture, without us recognizing it, has seeped in this whole progressive idea where church hopping becomes a very prominent thing and some people, ah, they, you know, like, uh, you know, church is something you do when you need a friend or church is something you go to when there's nothing else to do or where the weather is bad, you know, then you do that. Otherwise, you, why would you? So they have a very low view of church. Now, just to give it a, a final death blow, what we've done is we've actually validated online church. We've said to people, okay, so that online is now, is now church, right? And, uh, but it's not because the word church is the word ecclesia, which is the word a public, which means public gathering together of saints. A public gathering together. And we are commanded to gather together. And we've now been justified not to. We've been justified not to.
And what's that, what that has done is it has taken away the high view of the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ in this earth that is pushing back against darkness. Why is this important? Because it's in church where when you are planted, where we constantly sit around the scriptures and we, we start studying the revealed Christ. We start studying the scriptures and God is being revealed to us all the time. This is God loving on his body, revealing himself to his body. Oh, but if you don't have a high view of church, why would you do that? You go like, well, you know, I can go on, I can go to YouTube. Okay, then what about the gathering together and the meeting together and the exhorting of one another and the fellowship with one another that is so key in order for, because did you know revelation is transferable, relationally transferable? A revealed truth about God. God reveals to me and to you who He is when we start discussing His attributes. Have you ever noticed that? That's why we love eating together, don't we, family? <laughs> we love just food and food. And, food. And, it's, uh, and, and the reason for it is because we get to talk about the attributes of God, the ways of God, the goodness of God. And when we do... You know what happens after a while, we're all so excited because, hey, did you see this truth? Hey, did you see this about God? Hey, I read this verse. What do you think about that? Those are so wonderful, such wonderful times because God is being revealed and that is God loving on when two or more gather together in His name. There He is in the midst of, I mean, He's revealing Himself and this is His means of loving on you and His body. We have to have a high view of church again. The devil really has taken that truth from the body of Christ. And the devil has now given every single reason as to why it is the right thing for a person to not have two or three gathered together in the name of the Lord and therefore not experiencing that part of who he is. Because you may have a, you may have a revealed truth of who God is, but it, it may have stagnated and it may be limited. And you may go like, well, I don't know if God loves me. Well, this is the reason why, folks. We have to have a high view of church because God loves you by revealing himself to you. And that is why we read in this passage, Jesus waited two days longer. Why? Because he loved them. <laughs> Lazarus is sick. Oh, I'm going to have to wait another two days. It's going to take him a while to get into that grave because I love these people so much. I want to show them God's power, God's glory. Greater than death. Greater than the grave. There is no sting. And I can't wait to reveal this to them about God, because God loves them. This doesn't usually happen, but I didn't put numbers on my pages. I don't want to like jump around. I've got to go to verse 7, and there it is. I found it. <laughs> Thank you. So we are now, verse 7. It says, then after this, he said to the disciples, Let go to, let's go to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and yet you're going there again? Can you see what's happening here? We just went through chapter 9 and 10. And, and, and he had to leave there because after healing the blind man, now they were looking to kill him, and so he left. Now he hears the news about Lazarus, and he goes, okay, well, let's go back. Let's go to Judea again. And they said, no, why would you do that? You're going to get killed? You're going you're gonna to lose your life? This is, this is very dangerous for you, Jesus. Don't go there. He says, Rabbi, the Jews are now seeking to stone you, and yet you are going there again. Jesus replied with this very cryptic statement. Have you ever noticed that <laughs> these guys were actually not the sharpest tools in the shed either? 
his disciples. But he would use cryptic language and they would go like, what? It's all through the scriptures. And for whatever reason, Jesus loves to be cryptic. Now they're saying to them, don't go there. They're going to take your life. He says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, if anyone walks during the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. I can imagine the disciples going like Jesus. Okay, whatever. Don't go there. They're going to kill you. <laughs> Write that down. We'll figure it out later. But you can't go there, right? They're going to hurt you. It's dangerous. Well, what Jesus is doing there is he's really communicating to them the sovereignty of God. Jesus is urgent. He is preaching major sermons in a nutshell because his time is running out and he's got to go put himself on a cross in just a few days. He's teaching them the sovereignty of God. I mean, ask yourself this question. Is there any possible thought in your mind that Jesus gets murdered before he was able to fulfill his purpose. Can you imagine? I mean, it's, it's so insane to think God sitting, in, sitting up in heaven going like, oh, gone too soon. Oh, gone too soon. He shouldn't have gone to Judah. They killed him. Can you believe it? I didn't, he didn't even get to get on the cross yet. Now we have to figure out his plan B. You see, that thought doesn't work in your mind, does it? But that, that strange thought was actually in the disciples' mind. Like, Jesus, you have a lot to do. I mean, this is a great ministry you got going, and, and don't go there. You know, we don't want to lose you. <laughs> we don't want you to be gone too soon. And Jesus was saying to them, He is the light. And while His purpose and His ministry is still ahead of Him, it remains daytime, He said. Time to do the work of the kingdom. It's still daytime. While it's day for you and I, it's time for us to do the work of the kingdom. In other words, while your heart is still beating, while you're still alive, it's time to do the work of the kingdom. But when night comes, by God's design, Jesus will be done with His earthly work. When night time comes, by God's design and His decree, Jesus will be done with His earthly work and His ministry. And that is the time He will stumble into death and Jesus' cryptic message is explained. You guys, don't you see that by God's design, it is day. We're going to go and do what we have to do. Nobody's taken our lives because God's in charge. But when night comes, by God's design, I will stumble into death because my work will be done. Again, folks, there isn't a safer city there isn't a safe place for you to go or a safer country for you to live in than being inside of the will of God. That's it. Jesus was on purpose doing purposeful things for the ultimate purpose, and that is to glorify God, and there's no safer place than that. John 11, 11. So now we see Jesus already taught the message of, hey, <clears throat> you have a purpose in your life, and that is to glorify God. Number two, I love you, and the way I love you is I reveal God to you. And now he's saying, on top of that, stop fretting about, about the dangers in the world. The world is filled with dangers. God is sovereign. And while it's day for you, you do what you need, know you need to do, and that is to glorify God with the life that you have. Because every one of us, our days have been numbered. God numbered them. Satan did not. <clears throat> now in verse 11, he says, After this, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Here he's going to teach them another lesson, another massive sermon. He says, Our, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going so that I may awaken him from sleep. The disciples... Again, not the sharpest tools in the shed. Said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will come out of it. Don't worry. You don't have to go there and wake him up. Let him sleep. He'll eventually wake up. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. 
But they thought he was speaking about an actual sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus died, okay? <laughs> you got Lazarus, you got it? He did. He gone. Here Jesus teaches on death. And he teaches that death for the believer is like falling asleep. It's the same thing. It is simply a sleep that is longer than usual. Uh, Horst Balls is a German pro uh, Protestant theologian, a New Testament scholar, and he writes this, quote, It is no wonder then <clears throat> that sleep becomes the main way of referring to death in Christian thought beginning with a post-apostolic fathers. So the apostles here are taught on death being equal to sleep, and the post-apostolic fathers also believed that death and sleep for the Christian is the same thing. I quote, indeed, our word cemetery, he writes, comes from the Greek word koimeterion, which means a place of sleep. Now, John Christensen, who died in 407 AD, he was an important early church father and who served as an archbishop in Constantinople. Christensen says that since Christ died for the life of the world, we no longer call death thanatos because when God, when God said, if you eat from this fruit, Adam, you will thanatos, you will die. But now, in Christ, we no longer call death thanatos, but we call it haptis koimesis. And if you're Greek, don't worry, you can email me the, the right way to say this. And that word there is really two words that mean sleep. He says elsewhere, John Chrysostom says, what is death at most? What is it? It is a journey for a season, a sleep longer than usual, so that if you fear death, you should also fear sleep. It's the same if you're in Christ because you will be resurrected. You will be awoken. You will be woken up by Jesus himself. Here's Jesus giving us this great picture of how the resurrection is going to take place on the last day. He is going to go like, he, like he's going to wake up Lazarus. Lazarus, wake up. Come forth. That's what he's going to do. He's going to go, Johnny, wake up, come forth. And the dead will rise, just like Lazarus rose. Now this is, and okay, let me continue. John 11, verse 15, the next verse. <clears throat> Jesus says, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. What's he saying? I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't where Lazarus is while he got sick because I'd heal him and he wouldn't die. And you wouldn't see this glory that God is about to reveal to you. He says, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. So let's go to him. Okay, so that you may believe. So that, Jesus, I am a believer. <laughs> Jesus, I'm a follower of you. Actually, by the way, I'm one of your disciples. The ones you chose, that's who I am. And now you're telling me, you're glad you went to Lazarus' sickbed, keeping him alive. You're happy that he died so that I can believe. Consider Jesus' reason for not arriving at that scene. So that those who already believe can believe. That means to Jesus, faith is more important than health and comfort in life. Because if he was there, and the way we believe we ought to love is like, let's do everything to help somebody be most comfortable and everything to be most convenient for this person we love. Jesus goes, well, there's something way more important than that. And it's faith. Faith is more important. Let Lazarus go through the pain. Let Lazarus go through death. Because everybody's faith is going to escalate after this. Secondly, Jesus is in fact speaking to his disciples who already believe that means faith is progressive. Faith is God's gift to you, and faith naturally grows during each new revelation of God's glory. As God reveals more of Himself and His ways to you, to me, we continue to grow in faith in Him. I mean, this is a logical progression if you think about it. The greater God's glory becomes to you, your faith, it's easier for your faith to grow because of who you now see him to be. I mean, it makes complete sense. 
That's why faith comes by hearing and hearing of the Word of God. What, do I, what happens when I'm hearing the Word of God? God is being revealed to me and my faith grows in Him. So the walkaway point is Jesus planned raising Lazarus from the dead so God may be glorified and your faith may grow even greater because of it. Let's go to verse 16. It says, Therefore Thomas, doubting Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let also, let's also go so we may go die with him. Because remember now, they believe that if, when he goes there, <coughs> they're going to kill him. So they said, Thomas says, hey, let's go with him and let's go and die. So when Jesus came, <coughs> so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about 15 st st uh, stadia away. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. So then Martha, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. <clears throat> Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Then Jesus said to her, your brother will rise from the dead. Martha said to him, I know he will rise in the resurrection on that last day. So Jesus was saying to her, no, your brother will rise from the dead. She goes, no, that I know. On the last day, we all rise from the dead. The Jews believe that. You and I believe that. On the last day, he will be resurrected. We will have resurrected bodies. No pain, no weakness, no infirmities, no flesh. We will be in, in, in this, but there will be no enticement in our flesh. Walk through walls, travel at, at, the, at the speed of thought. Just like Jesus, he appears here and then appears there. We even see that in Philip. And so we will all have resurrected bodies when we rise on the last day. So Jesus says, yes, your brother, your brother, brother will not die, will rise from the dead. She says, I know in the last day he will be resurrected. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He gives two headings. He identifies himself as the resurrection. It's no longer an act. It's a person that you are now in, and that's why it's true for you. He is the resurrection, and he is the life. And then he explains it. He says, the one who believes in me will live even if he dies. You and I will live. Even though we die, we will live in him. We will be resurrected on the last day. We will have resurrected bodies. Anyone who, any, then he says, everyone who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So, yes, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Yes, you will be resurrected at the, at the last day, but you already have life. What's he saying? Jesus declares himself as both. He is the basis of your eschatological hope. In other words, your end time hope. Your eternal hope. But when he goes further and he says, I am the life, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. The life that comes through believing in Jesus is not interrupted by physical death at all. You only sleep. That's what he's saying. You only sleep. You're never going to experience the sting of death. That's why it says, oh death, where is your sting? We don't experience death. Because he is our life. So Jesus declares his own identity and those who identify with him will receive both those promises. Resurrection on the last day and eternal life. Let me ask you, eternal life, when did that start for you? When did eternal life start? The moment of conception. The moment you are regenerated, Christ gives you eternal life. When you become a born-again creature, you receive eternal life. Well, that life there is eternal life, right? If it, if it wasn't eternal, it would have been temporal. But you didn't get temporal life from Christ. The gift of God to you is eternal life. And so when He gave you eternal life, that life is forever. And on this side of that life, you will fall asleep. But you will never die. Life, death doesn't touch you like it touches the unbeliever. Let's go to verse 28. <clears throat> it says, When she had said this, she left and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. 
And when she heard this, she got up quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still at the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and were consoling her, when they saw that Mary had gotten up quickly and left, they followed her, thinking that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So when Mary came to the place where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would, have di- would not have died. Same as his sister. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Troubled over what death does to those he loves. He was troubled. And we're going to talk about what that word troubled means there. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. That's the shortest verse in all of the Bible. Jesus wept. So here we see Jesus experiencing two emotions at the same time. He weeps with those who weep, while at the same time, he is deeply moved. He's deeply moved and he's troubled. The original there, deeply moved and troubled, is anger. When Jesus saw them weeping, he got angry. And then he weeps with them. And in verse 38, he gets angry again. We have to see why. He is angry at death. And he's saddened at their grief. The IVP New uh, Testament commentary says this. Jesus' anger in verse 38 is not at their lack of faith as such. But again, at death. And it's challenged to him as life giver. Jesus is not angry at them for their level of faith. He's angry at what death is doing to those he loves again. Jesus came to the tomb in this uh, IVP New Testament commentary. It says, Jesus came to the tomb in the state of anger. And uh, I can't pronounce the original word there, but it's anger. Ready to exercise his power over death and thereby initiating the process that will lead to his own death and decisive victory over death. So, he comes up to that grave. And inside of him grows this anger towards that death that swallowed up that man he loves. He's so angry at that death, he was about to destroy the death over Lazarus' life, which will be the trigger for the religious world, the Jews, to say, that's it, crucify him right now, not knowing that they're crucifying him right at the perfect moment God had scheduled in his providence, and that is right at the same time as Passover. So here, Jesus was standing in front of the grave, angry at his enemy, death that swallows up those whom he loves, his bride, whom the Father has given him, and is about to conquer that death, triggering his own death in which he conquers death altogether, even his own. I mean, it's an amazing process. And God saw all of this happening. He planned it. He timed it. There's something I wanted to say there. You know, when you, when you read and you listen to people talk about David and Goliath, um, really about any Old Testament story, they always make themselves the hero. Right? They put themselves in the position of the hero. Like if you, learn, if you read the story about, about any, any one of the judges, you're like, yeah, I'm like Gideon, the weakest of the weakest, but I am the mighty man, a warrior. <laughs> you know, they read about uh, uh, Joseph. I am the one who provides for everyone. I am the one with the favor of God in my life. I am the one whom God smiles on. You know, like, they come to David like, I am David. I am the victor. I'm the victor against my enemy, uh, my, my Goliath, which is... Which is Man, those bills are stacked so high. It's like a mountain to me. It's like a giant. It's like whatever is up against me is my giant, and I am Goliath. I am David. I'm going to take out my giant. But really, uh, what happened there is, follow this, okay? Jesus is the better David. Jesus is the greater David. 
Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater Joseph. Jesus is the greatest Hosea. Jesus is the greater of everyone who represent him in any way. Here's the king, David. Remember, Jesus is not just king, priest. He's also king. He's also prophet, right? And so here's King David representing the coming Messiah, the coming king. And David goes to the battlefield and he faces off with Goliath, God's people's greatest enemy. Which is what? It's death. Brought on by what? Sin. Which is the reason Jesus came to the earth. It's to take care of sin and death in your life. And so here he stands, like David stands, in front of God's people's greatest enemy. He takes on Goliath on their behalf, and he kills that enemy. In the same way, Jesus is standing in front of the grave, and he's facing off with man's greatest enemy, death. And he is about to destroy death on their behalf. So verse 36, it says, so the Jews were saying, see how he loved them. See how Jesus loved Lazarus. But some of them said, could this man who opened the eyes of the man who was blind not have also kept the man from dying? Imagine. I mean, Jesus is just doing great things and great things and great things. He's about to raise this guy from the dead. And they're going like, huh, why didn't he just keep him alive in the first place? Why did he first let him die? I mean, what's wrong with him? So Jesus again, being deeply moved within, getting angry is the word there. I'm going to try and pronounce it. Embrimomenos. Okay, got it. There you go. Jesus. <laughs> being deeply moved within, deeply angered, came to the tomb, standing in front of his Goliath, or God's people's Goliath. Now it was a cave, and a stone was laying against it. Jesus says, it sounds like David. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have, you, that you have heard me. But I knew that you always hear me. Nevertheless, because of the people standing around I said it so that they may believe, so that they may believe, so that they may believe. Again, it's for the increase of their faith, so that they may believe that you sent me. I want to reveal your glory so that they may believe. I want to love on them and by revealing your glory for the purpose of them believing. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. This is what will happen. This is what you will hear one day. And your body will just become a resurrected body. Whether alive or dead, you'll just, if you're dead, you'll just rise. Come out of death. Out came the man who had died, bound hand and foot with wrappings. And his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Unbind him and let him go. Interesting thing. Did Jesus... Did Jesus offer life to Lazarus? No. Did he try and sell Lazarus the idea of believing in him and living? Did he, was, it, was it something that he coerced him into it? Did he use any kind of pragmatism? Like, hey, come be part of the body of Christ. We're a wonderful group of people. We love on people, and you'll have so many friends, and why don't you become part of us? And, no, none of it. None of it. He spoke to the dead and pulled them out of death into life, which is what happens to you and I. Lazarus didn't, Jesus didn't say, I see that hand. I see that hand. Good, thank God. Thank God, you know, great decision. He didn't say that. He just said, love! And life comes because he is the giver of life to the dead, those who cannot even choose 
Interesting. I want to read to you this statement. Um, uh, in regards to John chapter 11, Calvin says, and I quote, Christ does not come to the... Christ does not come to the grave as an idle spectator. But like a wrestler preparing for the contest. That's how Jesus came to the grave. Angry and worked up. And he conquered death. Right there in Lazarus. A type of what was going to go. What was going to happen to him. So here in one chapter... So many messages, series and series upon messages, Jesus teach in nutshells, and He just punches away at truth. He's delivering truth faster and faster as He approaches the cross. This death of Lazarus needs to be fulfilled in our minds and hearts. We need to understand that there's a purpose to life, and that is to glorify God. That is our purpose. That's the best use of life. There's no better use of life. Everything else burns up. We need to understand that when God reveals Himself, it is God loving on you. God reveals Himself to you in order to love you. We need to understand that when God is revealed to us, the more God is revealed to us, the more we see who He is, the greater our faith grows. That's why hearing the Word and hearing the Word and hearing the Word is building faith in us. Why? Because when we hear the Word, we're hearing who God is. And the more we see of who He is, the greater faith, the more we can trust Him. <laughs> I just trust Him the more I see who He is. If you could see God in all of His glory, you couldn't help but just, I, I give myself to you. <laughs> you know, I rely on you. I trust in you. I worship you, I glorify you. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have a second thought about it. That's what you would do. Forget the dollar. Look at God. You know, forget my pains and my aches. Look at Him. <laughs> wow, you can trust Him. He's able. So when we see His glory revealed to us, we need to know that is Him loving us. When His glory is revealed to us, we can have faith. Increasing faith. And I pray that our fear of death may be conquered and our hope for eternal life may be ignited as we consider everything that the Spirit of God te taught us today. Thank you, God, that we will never, our eternal life is actually eternal. And the life that we have in Christ cannot be interrupted by death because death has been conquered. We only sleep. And thank you for the promise that not only are you the one who gives life, but you are also the resurrection. You are the one that will call us up and we will live in our resurrected bodies with you forever. Amen. Amen. Did you get something out of the word today? Amen.